Welcome to the Everyday Innovator Podcast for product managers, leaders, and innovators. Your host is Chad McAllister, helping you become a product master. Listen and get ready for higher performance, for the doctor is in. Hi, this is Chad, and this is where product leaders and managers make their move to product masters, learning practical knowledge that leads to more influence and confidence so you'll create products customers love. Ask yourself this question, are you an innovator? Not every product manager is, but I think the good ones need to be. Innovation is most frequently described as a process that brings something new into existence, creating value for others, such as customers. There's lots of definitions, but it typically has some form of being a process. Our guest shares that innovation is really about people, and those who are good at it have a different mindset. While process is important, innovation needs the right people involved. This discussion covers a lot of ground with Chuck Sabota. He's the retired chairman and CEO of Cree and a pioneer in the LED lighting industry. And he shares his 30 years of experience with us. We discussed the mindset he wrote about in Innovator's Spirit that people used to make the seemingly impossible a reality. He also talks about examples of innovation at Cree, how to find and hire innovators, using brutal truths to improve anything, and why Steve Jobs was right when he said customers don't know what they want. I also asked him to tell us about an experience as a pioneer in LED lighting that provided him insights into innovation. The answer to that question can only be found in the show notes for this episode. That is also where you'll find a written summary of the entire discussion, which is a pretty handy reference for yourself and also for others to be able to share with colleagues. Check all that out at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 282. Now, let's talk with Chuck. Chuck, thank you so much for joining us and the Everyday Innovators. Well, thanks for having me today. So you have this book, The Innovator Spirit, and I love talking with innovators. You have this rich history doing a number of amazing things, uh, engineering-related and and helping others, too, uh, be innovators. I always think about a, a product in the sense of what is the problem it solves and who does it solve it for. So I'm wondering about your book in that context. You know, what, what problem did you write this book to solve and, and who for? So, you know, when I retired from my career at Cree, uh, people asked me, well, how did it work? And, you know, I never really thought about it. We just, we didn't talk about innovation. We just did it. And so as I started to do some research, I realized that most of what's actually written about innovation is really about process or recipe. And from my experience, what we did at Cree was really about people or mindset. And so I realized that there's a whole missing part of this conversation that I thought that I could write a book and share that. And so the concept was to take experiences and not break them down into the process we followed. But what was the mindset that let us do that? And so the goal would be is that anyone who's interested in what I call real innovation, this would hopefully give them an idea of how maybe they could unlock their own innovator spirit. Excellent. And, and I should tell you, I, I do my best to not read books ahead of time, uh, including yours, um, because I, I find that it's just so much more enriching to talk about it when it's more fresh to me, right? Oh, no um, problem. And uh, I, I love the concept of this book. So this is a book I definitely want to go back to, because I think the mindset is a key element. Sometimes it gets talked in terms of, you know, the culture must be different in one organization than the other, because you'll see two organizations that apparently do the same things. And one is wildly successful and the other one just doesn't get it going, right? Like, like Google should have been able to overtake Facebook and the, the what was it, the Google Plus social network thing went nowhere, right? And um, th- these things just happen. 
So mindset must be an important element in there, I think. Before we get to that, can you define innovation for us? Because we get it's talked about so many different ways. Sure. So I define the term innovation to mean something new that solves a customer problem and creates real value. And the point of it is that while new is what most of us spend our time and energy on, that's actually relatively easy. It's solving the problem and creating value. That's the hard part. So the book's really focused on what is the mindset necessary to do that part of it. Okay. So we got that as a good foundation and we're in good agreement on that, right? That's creating something new that creates new value, right? The, that, that's the emphasis I always place on it too. So if we're just doing something that is the same as everyone else, we're not really adding, adding value to the. To well, just on. along those lines mm-hmm. uh, in the book, I actually talk about is Google still innovative? Hmm. And I would argue that they're not because of the mindset. And so it'd be interesting to see when you get a chance to read it, because I think what, one of the things that happens is Google's a phenomenal company, but what innovation, according to my definition, has actually come out of Google in the last decade? Hmm. And I would say lots of cool technology, but they haven't actually solved the problem and created value. And I think it's because if you're at Google every day, going in and working on that technology, your job doesn't depend on you figuring it out. Hmm. There's the, you know, the thing that most startups have is this need to solve the problem or you might go out of business and lose your job and without that dynamic. And it's why if you actually compare what Google has produced themselves in the last decade versus the companies they funded with Google Ventures, radically different trajectories. Hmm. And one was they had no choice. If they didn't figure it out, their company went away. And the other one is they still get to go to Google every day. Yeah, the stakes are relatively low when that's the case, right? Um, I, I think about this as, as <clears throat> the Wright Brothers syndrome. I, I don't know if anyone talks about this exactly, right? But the Wright Brothers, they were just passionate. They wanted to be the first ones to fly. And I forget the guy's name. I think he was from France, right? That he was really well-funded. And everyone thought he was going to be the first one to figure this out and get in, in the, into the air. Well, it was easy for him, right? Everyone expected him to do it. And he could take his time because he was really well-funded, and the Wright brothers were scrappy and made it happen. Yeah. One of the thoughts I always give people is I think if you want to do something really hard, you don't want to actually have enough funding. Right. Because the innovation comes from necessity, right? It, it, it happens. comes from constraints. Yes. And, and if you take away the constraints, it's just too easy. And so, right. yeah, it was, Cree was always managed and run where we thought we were running out of money, even if we weren't. And we kind of took that approach and it was super helpful to, I think, our success along the way. And it's why, you know, some of the most well-funded companies we read about today don't get anywhere because they haven't suffered. It's a, I talked to someone the other day and they said that they went to France and they were talking to the winemakers there. And I said, you know, the difference between French wine and California wine, the guy says, what? He goes, you water your grapes. We don't water them here. So the reason our wine is so much better is it has to suffer because suffering is part of the greatness. And you start to think about the most great innovator stories the innovator suffered along the way. That's what led them to the greatness. And so if you take that away, you know, it's kind of one of my arguments is I'm not sure our current approach to startup accelerators or incubators works because they're meant to try to help you. In fact, I think what we should be doing is try to fail people. Hmm. We could come up with a good name for such a thing, I suspect. <laughs> Failure incubators. We would need a really good marketing campaign to help with this. Yeah, probably um, they're not going to sign up right away. Right. Okay, I do want to explore this mindset that you sure. uh, came through the the you know your experience there contributing so much to LED lights lighting, um, 
And so the mindset that you talk about uh, in the book that we need, what, what, what is that mindset that makes all this possible? Kind of describe that for us. Yeah. So the way I break down the innovator's mindset, it's, it's the beliefs that enable the behaviors that make innovation possible. And the challenge for most of us is that our life experiences have created a set of beliefs that actually get in the way of innovation. So for example, you know, we've been taught or we've learned that it's, it's better to avoid risk than to take risk. Or we've been taught that it's okay to settle for best practice instead of striving for something better. Or even in a more recent example, we've been taught that a crisis is a problem when in reality, it's also an opportunity. And so I think if you start to think about those concepts, that's a function of our life to some point. And so the mindset we're looking for is to flip those all around so that you think of risk as a good thing. And you think of, well, there's always a better way. Why would I ever settle for what someone else has done before? And that, you know, when you see a crisis, you kind of smile and you go, hey, this is where we're going to be able to make some money. Mm-hmm. It's a good point. I'm a part of a few entrepreneurial groups. And with crisis going on around the world, we uh, have been discussing this some. And uh, I love entrepreneurs because they, even though some of them are devastated right now, not having income come in at the moment, um, they're also looking at all the things that we that they could be doing, right? <laughs> um, and it's just that that itself is an interesting mindset. It is. And I think, and so the challenge is, We've all been trained, whether intentionally or not, to not think that way. And so mm-hmm. the great innovators have this. And then the book is really about how can you find it if you don't have it today? I hate to interrupt the interview because Chuck is delivering such important information for us. But I also have something important that I want you to know about because a lot of companies are taking advantage of this. This is called the RPM experience. And what this is about is really helping companies better leverage their product managers, helping them to be superstars to more consistently develop products that their customers love. And to make that happen, they're choosing this thing I created, the Rapid Product Mastery or the RPM experience. And it's meant to be a virtual experience. It was designed that way from the beginning. And it takes place over nine sessions, typically once a week. So we do it in nine weeks, meeting 75 minutes a week. And because it's a virtual experience, we get the most leverage out of that time together. People can kind of apply the concepts in between our sessions and then really go deep about how the information impacts their work as product managers. It's really resulting in behavior change. And it is a virtual experience designed that way from the beginning years ago because it's the most effective way for us to make that change, make product managers into the superstars that the organization really needs. Now, a lot of workshops have moved online, not all of them successfully at times. And this one, well, like I said, it was created from the beginning to be online. So if you're looking for a way to supercharge your product managers, help them do a better job creating products that customers love, check this out. You just go to the everydayinnovator.com slash RPM. You'll find information there and I'll be glad to talk to you more about it as well. You'll see a form for getting in touch with me there if you want to do that. Now. Chuck does have very valuable information for us. Let's get back to that. So help us dig into that. I don't know where you want to start with the, how do we develop this mindset? Um, and I would expect part of that is how, how do we push away these beliefs that we have gained over time that aren't serving us well? Yeah, I think it's hard to push them away. What I would say is uh, my advice to people is create experiences or situations where you put yourself in that allow you to 
essentially form a new belief. So for example, put yourself in a situation where you're likely to fail. Now, I'm not saying you want to try to fail on purpose, but for example, in a work environment, sign up for a stretch goal that you have almost no chance to achieve. And what I'll argue is that when you get past the fact that it didn't work out and you survived, you realize, hey, there wasn't really all that much to be afraid of in the first place. And so it's things like that. It's putting yourself in those situations where you start to realize that, wow, I this idea that I can't do something is in my head. It's not real. And I think you have to learn that. I think, you know, the challenge for most of us, we talk about, you know, one of the concepts that everyone says is important for innovation or entrepreneurs is resiliency. But you can't give someone resiliency. You learn it. And you learn it by surviving failure. So if that's what we want, then we have to both purposely put ourselves in those situations to make that happen. Okay, so we need to rush into a situation that is going to overwhelm us, that our chances of success are low. Is that what you're saying? To some extent, yes. Because I think what most of us think about is, and, and, the, and the places that need this the most are the places with the lowest risk. So I often talk with companies and we're discussing, hey, you know, when was the last time someone was fired here for something other than maybe like a class one felony? And almost every large organization is nobody ever gets fired here. So my point is, so you have zero risk. You could do anything. And so there's no downside. And yet those are the organizations that struggle the most. And it's actually the ones with the most to lose where you get good at that. But that's what I'm trying to help people understand is there's so many things you can do that will seem risky until you do them. And you go, wow, that wasn't so bad after all. And I think once you start building that momentum, you create a confidence. Mm-hmm. And assessing that downside is key to that. It's like, you know, what, it's the question, what is the worst that can happen if I fail in this situation? Yeah. And I think what starts to happen is you stop assessing the downside that way. Okay. You start to look at it as what would happen if I don't do this? Hmm. So what you start to realize is missed opportunity is actually the biggest risk. I feel like an uh, example here would help draw all the, you know, make this point clear. Do you have an example that you love of, of you know, there's it's you personally or someone else that said, okay, we're going to move into this area. We're going to try something new. It might fail and uh, we're going to learn from the experience. So when we decided, so early on at Cree, you know, we got into LED lighting, um, but we were really an LED company, not a lighting company. And we tried really hard to convince light bulb companies to make LED light bulbs. And after several years of working with them, none of them had come out with anything because the technology was moving so fast, their process to qualify something was so slow that the LED changed faster than they could finish their process. So after a couple of years, and our, and our focus was we're gonna make just LEDs. So a couple of years into this one day, a scientist shows up in my office and he goes, hey, I know you said not to work on this, but I did it anyways. And he has a prototype of an LED light bulb. And I'm like, but we said we weren't going to do that. And he goes, yeah, but they're not doing it. So we should do it anyways. So I looked at it and I said, you know what? We should do this. Mm-hmm. So we basically put a secret team out in a, in, a, in a warehouse that we didn't know. We rented, rented it. We didn't tell people where they went. We had five people develop the Creality bulb in secret over a year. So they developed it. They built a manufacturing line. They convinced the Home Depot to buy it and built an advertising campaign. And at that time, Cree had probably six or 7,000 employees. The day we launched the product, about 25 people in the company knew about it. And so you'd say, well, wait a minute. So you got into the consumer products business and had never been in it before. Yep. What was the downside? There wasn't any downside. Like what could go wrong? Okay. So we wasted some R&D funding. 
But we were in the business of trying to sell LEDs for lighting. If there's no market, you could have 100% market share of a market of zero, or you could try to turn this into something that's worth having. And you start to go, oh, so sure, there's some risk of spent R&D dollars, but there's a bigger risk of not turning this market on. And the risk of the spent R&D dollars is still, there's a ton of learning that took place in that process. Um, yeah, I mean, and I think that's one of the things that happens and you're getting at it, right? So people that like innovation view failure as learning instead of as failure. And, you know, I've had a chance to talk to lots of people in the process of writing the book. And it's very interesting. It's a common theme. I ask them what their biggest failure is. And most of them say either too, nut, too numerous to give you one, or I don't really think of it that way. Hmm. And, it, and it's a common theme. And I think, but you have to actually try it a few times and get experienced at it to feel that confident to do it. Because most of us have been taught to try to get the right answer. I mean, let's face it. We are, most of us are not raised like to shoot for failure. We're trying to get the right answer, right? And the reality is, is what you have to do in innovation is try to get an answer that may or may not really exist. Most of us are learned or we're raised and we learn to color inside the lines, right? With our crayons and that's how the world is. We're not supposed to take risks and go outside what's expected. Well, and, and, and your comment is it's literal, right? Think mm -hmm. about it. I have a young grandson. When he first got crayons, I still remember sitting there and someone gave him crayons and he started scribbling all over the paper. And my daughter's like, no, no, inside the lines. And I'm going... Wow, that's us. Mm -hmm. We're creating these boundary conditions that don't necessarily have to exist. So for this group that was at Cree doing the light bulb, uh, the five people that started that off in the warehouse no one knew about. Uh, so that sounds like a Skunk Works kind of project, right? Isolated from the rest of the organization, done in secrecy. Uh, I'm wondering if they, did they have anything on the line as part of this? Like did they, sometimes when Skunk Works gets set up, they know if they're not successful, that they don't know if there's a place for them in the future back in the organization. That's kind of the extreme on the line situation. Um, just, just was there anything in place to really push them over this year to make that happen? Well, they were absolutely under the impression that if it didn't work out, there may not be a place for them in the company anymore. Okay. So it was, we basically created effectively a startup. Um, Cree was, we were the bank, but it was a startup. And, and part mm -hmm. of it was, part of the reason for putting them in secret was, you know, Cree had become over a billion dollar company by that point. And I was worried that the processes and the mindset that was in the part of the organization that was good at running the billion-dollar company would actually get in the way of all these behaviors that when Cree was a startup worked, and now they were going away. So, you know, one of the, for me, I started at Cree at 30 people and 6 million in revenue. So, I remembered what that looked like, and I helped build a company that wasn't like that anymore. So, we were starting to look for ways to how we could recreate it, which was a really interesting challenge. And, and in this case, it worked. But I would also tell you, it's not just... It's not just that we said that the people were at risk. We did something that we picked people who were wired differently to start with. So huh. we did not, we purposely picked people we knew were good at this dynamic. In other words, these were not the rule followers. These were the rule breakers. You know, one of them was actually one of the original founders of Cree that was on the team. Like we put people there who knew what this looked like and how it felt. Okay, so you were in a sense, profiling people. You, you wanted people that were, uh, had this innovator's mindset uh, that we're talking about, right? Yeah, the, the term we would use is they were unafraid of failure, yet they were unwilling to fail. Okay, so they were going to keep pushing, figuring it out, making something happen. Yep, and, and, and in their mind, it, you didn't have to tell them they might lose their job. They were more, they were more motivated than that, right? That's actually a, a 
That's the stick approach. I think if you get real innovators, their pride was on the line more than anything. They have skin in the game just because of that, that they, they want to make, do something new, make something new, be part of something special. Yep. Um, I, I think that's a key aspect of, of innovators, that we, we want to do something different and uh, add value to the world. I agree. And, and, and so I think part of for my challenge as we were building the company was we actually interviewed people with that in mind. So we purposely looked for people that I would say were not in the mainstream. We wanted people that were kind of on the edges of their previous organizations. In fact, people that worked at big companies for too long, we almost, for a long time, we refused to hire them. And it wasn't because they weren't really smart. They were. But if you've learned to accept boundary conditions and process as a normal way of doing things, it doesn't, it just makes it really hard to embrace what we were trying to do. And so we were absolutely screening people for their mindset. Right. I have a friend who started his career in the Air Force, and he uh, often has shared with me that his commanders at various times would say, uh, you have just the right amount of insubordination to uh, not get yourself you know, thrown out, but to actually be an asset, right? Yep. Yep. So that, that rule breaker, not afraid of failure. Um, okay. Uh, and that one more question about that was, uh, as you were trying to hire people specifically for that, did you use a, a tool, an instrument to help with that, to help identify the right characteristics? Or was this just more experience and, in a sense, I guess, gut feeling for who, who should be there? So I had my own personal tool, which was um, essentially I used, I used a, a kind of what I made. I didn't call it the UFO test at that time, but I've kind of re-nicknamed it. So the first thing I wanted to know is how did they deal with uncertainty? So I would ask anyone. And by the way, I didn't just ask engineers. If I was interviewing a finance director, I'm going to ask him the same question because it's an innovation company and the finance guy's got to be comfortable that innovation comes first, finance second. So I would ask everyone to, while we were sitting in a conference room with a whiteboard, I'd say, I want you to tell me how you would figure out how many barbers there are in the city of New York. Hmm. It's a good question. (laughs) Exactly. And I would ask him to do it on a whiteboard and I would get one of three reactions, blank stare. Uh, just there's not enough information. Second group would be kind of, I'd start working and go, there's not an, and then they would stop. And a third group would try to figure it out. Didn't, I didn't care what the answer was. I just wanted people in the third group. The first group was going to hate working in a company that things were breaking all the time. And the second group, if they gave up that easily, probably wasn't going to work out. So that was kind of the first one. The second thing I really focused on was I really wanted people to describe their biggest failure to me. I never asked about their biggest accomplishment. And what I want to do is not only describe it, but to tell me, what do you think you learned from it? And learning from failure is fundamental to innovation. And what I found is it's pretty easy to tell people that just aren't good at that, right? They're not comfortable with it. And it doesn't make them, it, it, it doesn't make them better or worse generically, but it does make them better or worse for the problem we were trying to solve. And so I would say those are the two main things I did with everyone. And then obviously I would adapt from there. The, the last thing was, I would often then try to find a situation where uh, on their resume. So for example, I interviewed someone from Kodak one at a time. And I basically said that, you know, you worked there and when you went bankrupt. So why did you let that happen? And they're like, well, I didn't let it happen. I was just on the team. I said, well, if you're on the team, you let it happen. And, like, and they got really uptight. I said, what could you have done about it? Because there's a level of accountability, this idea of unwilling to fail that, 
you know, people can do way more than they think they can. You got to empower yourself. And so I was kind of looking for that dynamic as well. And so those three pieces I would bring together. Um, and then in the last thing I would ask them was, is if their title was important to them. And if it was, we never hired them. And if they didn't care, we would. But if there was 0% chance we'd hire someone because we, I couldn't even guarantee their job would be the job I was hiring them for in a month later, right? And it, it, when you're pursuing new technology, you don't actually know what's going to work, right? So there's a lot of left turns, right turns. And so that's what we were looking at there. It's a beautiful thing about working in a startup or a small organization, um, ones that have many hats that you wear at any given time, and you you just have to figure it out, right? And um, the, the idea of having a well-written job description for what someone has to do just kind of rubs me the wrong way, because we need people doing the right things at the right time, but I also want people that are flexible enough to go tackle the problems that come up, and we don't know what those problems are yet. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, so it's basically, you need people who are good at solving the problem that's in front of them mm -hmm. and it might be different tomorrow. Yep. Real good. Okay. There's some uh, concepts in the book that I, I, as I skimmed through, I did notice one, you talked about brutal truths. Tell us what these things are and why we need them. So the brutal truth is just my way of saying that uh, if you're going to innovate, you got to be really focused on the unvarnished facts. You got to get rid of all the niceties that most organizations try to build in and, you know, most organizations, I would say, care about collegiality more than constructiveness. The brutal truths are constructiveness over collegiality, because if you're not willing to get into the real details and the facts, you got no chance to solve the problem that needs to be solved. So we encouraged this idea that people would call you out in a meeting. And it wasn't personal, but the key to be it not being personal, it wasn't that you were supposed to watch how you said it. It was you were supposed to watch how you heard it. So it was up to the person listening to be responsible for their own mental state. You have to hear this as constructive. And if you get everyone to start there, it gets way easier because if I'm trying to worry about how you might take my feedback right now, I will eventually stop giving you the brutal truth, right? I'm going to start following, you know, good for good reason, trying to be nice about it but that isn't going to help you solve the problem. So that was the dynamic we tried to create. Mm -hmm. That's really good. The, uh, I, I don't know if you've read the book, uh, Creativity Inc. about uh, Pixar. That I have familiar? not, but I did research on Pixar for my book and we have okay. some examples of their candor, their, their yeah. style of candor. Yes, it's in my book. Yeah, I, they, it's, it's in the chapter on the brutal truths, in fact, because awesome. I was super interested in that. The other one that was really interesting is there's a, a company called Spotify. Yeah. <laughs> And not Spotify, no. Um, not the music company. No, Toby Lutke is the CEO. Um, starts with an S, Shopify. Oh, yes. He, he talks about this idea of that you're responsible for your own mental state. And he actually borrowed it from someone else. But it, it's a really clever way to kind of help people think about it. And it, de, it demystifies it a little bit. It helps the person understand that the listener has a role in this. I think to me, I didn't learn that till later, but that helped a lot to try to explain it to other people. Yeah. Shopify is such a great case study because if you look at Shopify and what they were doing, a lot of people from the outside would go, Amazon's just going to crush them, right? There's no reason for them to keep trying. And instead, they were doing a good job listening to a specific group of customers and making their life easier. And now it turns out if you have an e-commerce store, there's a really strong chance you use Shopify and you sell on yep. your store through it and you sell on Amazon through it. And there's yep. just 
doing a great job for so many people. Okay, yeah, and I, I love the Pixar stories about how they, as a team working on a new movie, you know, Toy Story 3 or whatever it might be, uh, would get together and just the, they talk about brutal honesty, right, with each other. You talk about the brutal truths. Um, and people walk out of there, you know, they, they know that it's going to be uncomfortable, but they're going to get real feedback that they now are responsible for doing something with, right? And that's what it's just being aware of the feedback. Yeah, and also it changes the dynamic. You know, innovation's hard. Mm-hmm. So if you waste any amount of time not working on the real problems, you've got almost no chance to get there, right? So right. Yeah, it, it, it keeps everyone focused on what really matters right now. And there's one other concept that you talk about, uh, speaking of customers, and you, you shared this with what I, you know, quotes from Steve Jobs that we all know, but, you know, the customer doesn't know what they want. Um, tell us your take on that. So what became obvious to us when we were trying to come out with LED lighting is we tried to do market research on the light bulb. And when you asked a customer what they wanted in their light bulb to make it better, the only thing they could come up with was cheaper. And what it started to become obvious to us is that a customer can't ask for something that they don't know is possible. They just can't. They, you ask for something based on your knowledge and experience, and they can't possibly do that. And so what we realized is, though, is it's not don't talk to the customer. And by the way, I think Steve Jobs gets misquoted there a lot because he's not suggesting you never talk to them. But what he is saying, and what I totally agree with, is they can't tell you what to do. And in fact, if you do what they tell you, you're going to end up with something that's incremental at best. It certainly won't be innovative. So what we try to get people to think about is listen to the customer, but listen to the problem that needs to be solved. That's where the magic opportunity is. So you have to get good at asking different questions because you're not really interested in what they want you to do. You're interested in the problem that they have, which is a different way of thinking about it. But it became really helpful for us and also helpful thinking about if you're going to then bring that new innovative product to market, you now have to make it relevant to their problem. So the other thing I think we often miss is you have a great widget and you can't sell it because you're talking about why you think it's good. It's irrelevant. What matters is what problem do you solve? And so with the light bulb, we tried in the beginning to sell it as an energy saving device. Nobody cares. As much as everyone thinks being green is important, they think with their wallet. The moment we realize that the reason you want an LED light bulb is because it saves you money and you're just throwing money away if you don't, that changed the whole dynamic. And so we use the concept not only to figure out what we should do, but it's also became kind of our marketing approach. Mm-hmm. It's good. You have to know, because on one hand, you might look at that and say, well, it saves energy, so obviously it's saving you money, but you have to put it in the words that the consumers are using themselves to describe the problem that they're having. Yeah, the advice I got from someone one time is, is that people already have problems. Mm-hmm. So what you need to do is figure out what those are and how you solve one of them, not the other way around. It's actually the same way. In all honesty, it's the same way you run an election, that you pick the topic that's the biggest problem for people. And if you solve that one, you win the election. Right. Yep. And do it with clarity. You stand up. Okay. Really good insights. As listeners know, I love innovation quotes as well. I asked you for one. Can you share that with us and why you chose it? Yeah. So my quotes from Thomas Edison, which as the LED light bulb guy might not surprise you, but it's, there's a better way to do it, find it. And, you know, that just, when we first read that, and then by the way, we didn't read it probably till about 10, 15 years into my career at Cree. And when we read it, it's like, it just resonated with kind of what we had been doing and, and it helped, it helped convince us what we should do more of, which is this idea that, you know, too many organizations 
do something great, and then get satisfied with that thing, right? Mm-hmm. There's, and once you become satisfied, you have no chance to continue innovating. You have to be searching for better every day. And part of the way you find it is you have to believe it's out there. And so I think what helped us so much is that that quote really signified kind of a, a mantra and a mentality that we used not only to build the company, but once we heard it, it became even more ingrained in our culture. You gotta love a quote from Edison. He was an interesting guy when you study him, but he uh, came up with some great ideas for sure. So he did. I don't think there's any doubt he was a good innovator. Oh, absolutely right, and uh, a, a master at the press. Um, I, I think those wonderful insights to learn about how to use the press to your advantage. Did that very well. Okay, this is excellent. How do we find your book? And any, if anyone wants to follow up with you, just thank you for your time or uh, share some ideas with you. How can how can we make that happen? So the book is currently available for pre-order on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and just about anywhere. It'll be in bookstores starting on May 5th. If you want to know more about me or the book, you can find out on chuckswoboda.com, or you're welcome to follow me on LinkedIn or on Twitter at thechuckswoboda. And if you're interested in some of my other thoughts about innovation that aren't in the book, I do have a podcast called Innovators on Tap, and I write a weekly article now for Forbes. Awesome. And if we listen to uh, innovator, is it innovators on tap? Innovators on tap. And, well, and the idea behind that, yeah, so the show is really about people's mindset. So part of what I wanted to do is talk about innovation, not just as a tech company, but everywhere. So you might hear a social innovator. We recently just interviewed the guy who started the, uh, a charity that makes shoes that grow but I've also had solar company executives. And so it's really about, it doesn't matter what you're trying to innovate. It's about how do they think? And I think by sharing their stories, what you start to realize is it just reinforces my belief that this is a mindset and you can learn it. Excellent. Chuck, appreciate all the information. Thanks for your time with us. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thanks again for listening to the Everyday Innovator. This is where you come to learn to be a product manager, gaining influence and knowledge to make that happen and create products that customers love. That was such a valuable discussion with Chuck. I've learned more about him since we did the original interview, and he is a great mentor to people that are pursuing innovation and is really giving back to the community with all his experience helping to teach others about innovation. you find the written discussion of everything we talked about, including that bonus question about his experience that led to an insight in innovation. That's at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 282. Keep innovating. Thank you for listening to The Everyday Innovator, which teaches product managers to become product masters. For more resources, please visit TheEverydayInnovator.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.